It's that time again for the assault on your ears we call Lower Dorks, a Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. I'm Aaron, and with me is Stavros. Tonight on our screens is Episode 9 of Season 2, Wajduj. And in our cups is a little Jameson Black Barrel. Yes, this is my first time having this particular Irish whiskey um, at your recommendation. And we are actually both drinking our drinks from a Lower Decks Cerritos Bar Logo Rocks glass. Um, you can get yours at StarTrek.com's shop. Um, they're not a sponsor, but it does look pretty nifty seeing the Jameson in there. You know, I don't. I'm not. I'm just not sure. You know, we've we've done a lot of drinks this season. Um, a lot of them are whiskeys. I'm just not sure that whiskey is for me. After all this, I think uh, I'm about several sips in at this point. It's getting better, but I'm just not sure I'm a whiskey man. Oh, I can't believe you're trashing on my black barrel this is far and away my favorite whiskey it's not the smoothest whiskey out there but it has a deep smoky flavor that just fills all your taste buds and it goes down easy ah it's so fantastic it does have a very rich flavor i'll give it that i'm just not sure maybe i need the flavored stuff maybe that's my yeah, no thing. i mean I'm just that kind of whiskey I, I understand you're that kind of man who has no taste <laughs> yes it very well could be but now that we've covered the drink should we talk about the episode a little bit uh that sounds like a reasonable proposition well in this episode i liked your pronunciation of wage douche by the way i don't know if i could do the I, I don't quite I, I don't know if it's accurate or not though i'm just winging it here <laughs> well anyway um in this episode on board the cerritos Boimler tries to find himself a bridge buddy, but at the same time, on the Klingon bird of prey, Chita, Mash tries to aspire to be the ship's first officer, while on the Vulcan cruiser Cheval, Talin gets in trouble for her constant outbursts. And in the end, all plots converge as the three ships meet the Pakled's clump ship, which is named Pakled. Yes! Welcome to our <laughs> ship! I enjoyed this episode a lot, just to just start the conversation out with that. I think it's easily one of the best episodes of the season so far if not the entire show i don't know what's your do you have that knee jerk definitely i had a hard time watching it critically even on the second watch through i was just enjoying it so much that it was really hard to be subjective and i'm sure there are problems with it and i'm sure there's tons of details i missed but overall (laughs) uh, just a fantastic episode Uh, As you mentioned, there are three subplots, all following Lower Deckers from different races that come together in the end. And what's really interesting about that is, I believe the title uh, in Klingon literally translates to three ships. Yeah, I was actually going to mention that the text for the episode name usually shows up in in English, but having it show up in Klingon was pretty darn cool. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's the the Klingon translation for the episode name anyway, right? It's three ships. So makes sense. Although, you know, we're going to get into this later, but there are actually five ships in this episode, but three made ones. If I were to nitpick, I would say it should be called five ships. Well, I mean, there's the storyline focuses on the crew of three ships. That's I think true. you're uh, picking we'll nits that. here, Stavros. <laughs> I may or may not be. But let's talk about the different plots, shall we? Um, let's start with the, the one on board, the Cerritos. Um, and of course, as we mentioned, so Boimler um, needs a bridge buddy. <laughs> By the way, bridge buddy, hilarious uh, n- uh, name for something that Boimler needs. Completely does seem like a Boimler thing. I, I think that is a fantastic idea for a spinoff show. That's like an odd couple style show set in Star Trek universe. <laughs> yes. Bridge buddies. Uh, would be fantastic. <laughs> like, you know, it's some high-ranking senior officer who's 
forced to bunk with a lower decker would be great. <laughs> I feel like that would completely fit with the theme of the show, too. That's pretty funny. But of course, yeah, Boimler, he doesn't have a lot going on on this long warp. He actually suggests a stratagemma tournament. Um, and if you remember that, that's a game that Riker played against uh, an alien opponent in that TNG episode peak performance. That's the one where you like stick little finger gloves on and like you wave your fingers around in the air and bit play. Was it, it's kind was of it Riker or there. Data where like Data couldn't beat the alien ambassador until he finally stopped playing to win and started playing just to survive? Was it that? I think. Do they both play in that episode? I know Riker for sure does. He kind of wanted to just go up against the stratagem master. And then does Data end up beating him or stalemate something yeah, like he that? Take, he fights him to a stalemate um, and can't actually right. win, despite obviously Data's right. superior machine, machine intellect. Which leads me to believe right. his opponent was probably cheating. <laughs> well, he was a master, so you have to give him a little bit of credit there. That was a pretty fun reference. I enjoyed that quite a bit. There's a lot of stuff going on at this point. A couple things I wanted to point out um, that were pretty interesting that happened in this scene. A lot of it is kind of like cool background stuff. Hilariously, a lot of the background stuff in this season takes place on background characters in the actual bar set. <laughs> so, for example, there's a character in this in the scene where Boimler goes to Kayshawn to try and make him his bridge buddy, where there's a woman wearing hijab, which I think is a first for Star Trek, I want to say. Don't really see a lot of that in this in this particular show. I know we've seen a turban, I think, in this show, but not a hijab. Okay. I, I know you're all into fashion and clothing. It's not my cup of tea. <laughs> That's apparently something that I care a lot about. I've, I've so noticed. Maybe it, I don't know if this counts as fashion and clothing, but I believe in the same scene there is a background character at the bar wearing a katarian headset the game headset from that tng episode the game where the woman tries to take over the ship by getting everyone addicted to endorphins by making them wear this weird headset i'm a little concerned does this rita's crew just under the influence of the katarian game right now you know it's actually funny that this pops up again in modern times because it was a little prophetic i mean albeit they were making those same claims about video games in the 80s yeah not quite as true as some of the things we're seeing now with abusive gameplay loops and addictive gameplay loops that are being developed now but yeah, I mean, I'm going to assume that this is much like Synthahol. They found something they liked and made a non-alcoholic version of it. <laughs> it's just not addictive, maybe. It's like a legal version of the Katarian headset. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, those are some interesting finds so far. <laughs> I, I'm a little worried that, you know, so Boimler, of course, goes to see Rutherford and Shax in the, like, clay spinning room, which, of course, the Cerritos has one because, of course... And Boimler just completely offends Shax when he's talking about the Bajoran occupation. I feel like Boimler might know a thing or two about the Bajoran occupation, but maybe that is something that his book smarts have failed to learn about Shax. No one's spinning clay under Cardassian occupation when Shax was probably growing up on Bajor. Here's here's the thing, though. And this this scene really gets me, because <laughs> what the hell, dude? It's been <laughs> what? It's like dark. 20 years since the yeah. Bajoran occupation? And albeit, Mm -hmm. in the real world, and probably in Star Trek, as portrayed by Picard himself, PTSD never really goes away. You can treat it, but if your stage of PTSD is somebody mentioning the location your trauma happened, sends you into a blind rage, I I feel like (laughs) the uh, ship's counselor is not doing his job. 
Yeah, I'm a little worried about Miglimo too. Like that that bird man needs to do some work with Shaxx. I mean, or, he's been dead recently. You know, just uh, get fired and replaced with somebody competent. <laughs> yeah, we don't know how good Miglimo is. Or you so. know, maybe that's the problem with the Federation. It's all happy-go-lucky, good times. So they're used to dealing with people yeah. who are like. I did not get the toy I wanted for Christmas when I was six. <laughs> and then they're like, yes, well, we can work through this. And then Shaq shows up and I spent 30 days in the wilds <laughs> living off of the flesh of dead Cardassians. <laughs> and it's all like, oh, dear. Would you like? Miglimo's uh, <laughs> like, I don't know what to do with this. So here, do some clay. Come some clay. It's the other part for this me for me is. I refuse to believe that was the experience of all Cardassians during the occupation. Cardassians, or Cardassia, Bajorans. Or Bajorans, yeah. <laughs> Bajor is a world of, what, how many billions of people? It's a world, sure. it's just like Earth. And you're telling me a foreign power occupied every corner of that planet? There had to be corners of the planet that, like, just, there's nothing of value there like like Delaware, right? So they just never bothered to <laughs> occupy. Right. Well, you know, in uh, when the Bajorans were first introduced in TNG, they kind of paint them out to have, like, several, like, colonies that are under, you know, kind of loosely connected and are kind of like a loose canon. Maybe, you know, you could have easily been from a, a non-Bajor colony. Yeah, Bajoran colony. there were Bajorans living off-world who had escaped the Cardassian occupation, you know? Exactly. I don't know. So that, I, I'm in Boimler's corner here. It's not reasonable for him to expect mentioning Bajor would be such a yeah. huge trauma for Shax. The Shax needs some some help, man. Call a competent counselor as soon as possible. Yeah, buddy, get help. It's okay. <laughs> get some. Help. It disappoints yes, me that Rutherford isn't there trying to get him the help he needs. Not a very good friend, that Rutherford feller. I know. All he's doing is uh, sucking up to him, trying to get. He had, Rutherford has two bridge buddies in this episode. By I the don't way. think he does, though. Shaxx, you don't think so? I but think they don't show him and Billups. Him they and, don't show Rutherford and Billups. Him and Shax have a very deep, shared Lovecraftian trauma where they have stared into the <laughs> abyss and it stared back into them. Right. But I'm not sure if Billups is really Rutherford's bridge buddy. Is this Rutherford's and Billups' first date? What? Yeah. No. They don't mm-hmm. show it. It couldn't have been that important. I, you know what? They don't show it, so maybe it's, you know, not... Uh, <laughs> they didn't show... Uh, oh, damn. They did show Keiko and O'Brien. Um, They didn't show... <laughs> they show a lot of stuff this season, man. And, yeah, you know and Rutherford and Dip Billups tasting soup, yeah. which was their activity, is not one yeah, of them. Yeah, it sounds like a so, date to me. I don't know. Tenderford forever. Rutherford lips. Ride or die, baby. <laughs> Uh, although speaking of Rutherford, I, uh, during this show when uh, Boimler is back talking to the other lower deckers, did you notice Rutherford working on the the DS9 model that they show the box of in the Duplers episode? You know, I did, and it's fantastic because the first time I watched it, I'm like, why the hell has he got a model of DS9? And then the second <laughs> time, I'm like, oh, right. internal consistency. Yeah. yeah, I love it. It's a lot of effort there, guys, for a uh, silly yeah, I know. show. Uh, all the effort. I want all the all effort. the effort. Uh, but anyway, uh, Boimler goes and sees some other crew members too. She, he goes to check out Ta'ana and Tendi in the holodeck scaling a mountain. And of course, there's a lot of uh, Star Trek V references in there where yeah. Boimler is wearing the... Go climb a rock? Yeah, that's right. And the rocket boots. You know, clear Star Trek yeah, V reference. Yeah, he's, he's uh, Spock flying up the mountain while Kirk is climbing. And why is Kirk climbing? Because William Shatner directed the film. His answer was... 
<laughs> yes. Because it's there. So here's my question. Oh, I see. If it's holographic, is it really there? Hmm. Did they say that in this episode, though? I know that's in Star Trek No, they 5. don't. I'm just saying. I have a lot of <laughs> questions. Why are they climbing? I mean, Ta'ana makes sense. Yeah. She's a cat. That's what they do. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. That's, that's why Tendi's there. She's sucking up to Ta'ana. My bad. Exactly. It all makes sense now. <laughs> you know, the funny part about this scene is after Boimler falls and he exits the holodeck and he's looking all sad, he's still wearing the rocket boots. So the rocket boots were real. Well, unless we're... They were not part of the holographic situation. Unless we're going by uh, TNG pilot rules where somehow things can leave the holodeck. Maybe we are. Maybe we are. I was a little concerned. I think Boimler could have really hurt himself there. Well... And uh, as we all know, Tana gave no Fs about the safety protocols. I would assume that the safety protocols are automatically on and you have to manually shut them off. Like, otherwise, that's just bad I don't think so. Although, as we all know, holodecks uh, are easily going on the fritz, so... But let's see, what else happens in this A-plot? So, yeah, so Mariner, it's kind of a subplot of the A-plot. Mariner and Captain Freeman hanging out together, having some mommy-daughter time. They, of course, have the the phaser target practice thing where they're discussing some womanly uh, issues and uh, and Boimler cannot leave the <laughs> target range fast enough. But my favorite, actually, was when they're playing... I think it it, see, it, it kind of sounded like, like a Starfleet version of Clue. Where the you know they discuss the killer being the chef with the weapon that can shoot through walls, which is of course that TR one one six rifle, and Mariner says chefs are shady, and I don't know is that a dig at uh, chef in Enterprise or are all Cisco fans going yeah, to have so to? Take here, here's my saying: like she served under Cisco, like <laughs> that's you, right. You would, yeah, she's been yeah, on DS9, she was right? serving on DS nine when Cisco was there. So like I feel like she would have more of an understanding. Maybe she didn't like Cisco. Maybe Cisco reprimanded her. I would love Maybe. to see Avery Brooks reprise his role as Cisco, and it's just like <laughs> five minutes of him chewing out Mariner in that angry Cisco voice. Oh, it would be fantastic. <laughs> that would be. But amazing. yeah, and I think the uh, phaser range scene was probably a callback. It's shown up several times. I, for some reason, yes. remember Guinan. It was a Guinan and Picard enjoying a good bout of phaser target practice and i think there's actually a game where you that's shoot right. at things that's shown up before oh it even showed up in uh yeah. lower decks last season didn't it i think so it showed up a number of times i think even in there's even voyager where seven and captain janeway shoot at the disc yeah. is flying around yes or whatever. yes definitely i feel like if phasers were a real thing with like a stun setting like i'm betting kids would play phaser tag like literal like laser tag <laughs> not like laser tag where it like just shut, turns on lights but they just run around shooting each other knocking each other out that's one way to uh, keep your toddler under control is, is give all the toddlers a phasers with lock to setting okay. one and they just so when I was talking about kids I'm thinking like 10 year olds or 12 year olds <laughs> and you're like yeah let's just phaser the baby he's a little crying today <laughs> do I need to call this CPS? episode just got really dark yeah, <laughs> I'm constantly thinking of ways to keep my toddler under control. I, so. I think any maybe it's good that phases aren't. I real. think any toddler owners are. I think so. <laughs> but let's see. Back to so the kind of the main the the way that this a plot gets resolved sort of is Boimler hanging out with Commander Ransom, who honestly he should have just gone to Ransom in the first place since Ransom is probably his direct superior since he's in command division well and he's kind of starting to show himself as boimler's chadish if you will yes oh i like the reference nice yeah honestly it's 
you know, there's the whole plot where Boimler says he's Hawaiian like the rest of them, but of course none of them turn out to be Hawaiian. And then the rest of them are, are of this group is I decide they figure out they're from various moons, but Boimler's not. Uh, but you know what? Ransom, I, I got to hand it to you, man. I know Ransom is, is your favorite character on this show. And Ransom really, uh, really proves himself in this episode. I was worried that he was going to completely lose his mind <clears throat> at Boimler for lying. But you know what? He goes, he even says, I like you guys for you. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? Wow, I feel I feel really good Dude, right I now. I keep saying it. He puts on this air of like bravado and machoism and, you know, has this ego... But, like, underneath all of that, he's, like, true blue Starfleet. He is, like, the embodiment of what we should aspire to be. Yeah. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta say, this is changing my mind about, about Ransom. You know, only... You know, only like, I was like, wow. Yeah. I mean, he is the man I desire to be. I mean, only except <laughs> for in the ab area. I like uh, garlic bread uh, a little too much. You know what? When you can replicate whatever food you want... Yeah, it's hard um, to it's lose It's hard to control weight. your eating. <laughs> You know, I thought that, that Ransom sending Boimler the cadet really showed that Ransom actually knows how to be a real boss, and he's not just a like a meathead. So A big part of leadership is pairing people up based on synergies and who is best for each other. There's always like this easy thing you can do when you're in a leadership role, and that's just like, eh, those two guys like each other, I'll let them work together. And it's all like, that's not always the best direction to go. Yeah, yes. you're totally right there. I thought that was a good kind of summary of the A-plot, all the things that happened there. Are we missing anything? Or is there anything in this A-plot that you really liked or want to point out? No, I think we hit on all of the important things. Uh, I will talk about something towards the end that uh, happened in the A-plot, but it's really a part of the resolution. We mentioned Mariner and her mother and their bonding. And yes. there's some exchanges in this that I think were rather ominous from a writing and storytelling perspective. But I don't like Ominous, so let's move on to something more fun. (laughs) Okay, that is certainly something we can do. Let's talk about the B-plot. It takes place aboard the Klingon Bird of Prey Cheta, which I did a little research, and apparently Cheta means ruler, and I assume that means, like, someone who rules something, not, like, something you use. I assumed it was meant for a measurement device. My bad. You know, you gotta say, some things are, like, six birds of prey long. I served first with honor aboard the tape measure. Maybe that's what they're going for. Maybe it's that ship is more of a measuring specialist. I was kind of disappointed that they didn't design a new Klingon ship. Yes, I could tell. I, I know. I bet you were excited about the Vulcan ship, which we were talking yeah, about in yeah, a little we'll bit. But yeah, they're kind of they kind of went back to the bird of prey, well which for is this. era appropriate and for whatever reason that's sure. but not for whatever reason. It's all about production values, and it is a good looking ship. Yeah, that's true. So let's see. The Cheta is captained by the evil Captain Dorg. That's D O R G. One of the many random Klingon. Are names. we sure it's Dorg though? Because pretty sure when I first when I first watched and I heard it pronounced, I it sounded like okay. Torg to me, which of course was the officer serving under Kruge in Star Trek Three. I think it's Kruge, right? But then later I'm listening to it, and the first time they mention his name, I think they call him Tog. And then later it's Dorg, and I'm just like, the fuck's going on here? (laughs) So I think, so I I watched it with the subtitles on. I think the original first officer is Tog, T-O-G-G, and that guy gets taken out. And then the captain is Dorg, and then the character, like the lower decker that we follow here is Mach, M-apostrophe-A-C-H. Yes, is that Mach? 
or ma'ake. Ma'ake. Ma- ma- <laughs> in, in the subtitles, it has an apostrophe in there, but the way they pronounce it in the show is just like all one thing. Yeah. But um, we have some interesting cameos here. Um, the Captain Dorg is uh, voiced by Colton Dunn, who has some comedy experience. Um, he was in. He's done some Keen Peel work, and if you've seen the show Superstore, he's the store worker in the wheelchair. I'm not really. I'm not sure what his character name is, but he was like a regular on that show. And then Mach is voiced by John Curry, who's done a ton of video game work, and he's had a lot of smaller TV roles. So kind of interesting cameos there. Yeah. See, but a, a lot of fun stuff happening here. I love in they show the uh, corridor where all the Klingons sleep, and of course, it's like almost exactly the same as sleeping in the hallway. Starfleet guys, uh, the one guy sharpening his teeth was especially hilarious, and like the tiny little mirror. Yeah, and they wake up uh, Mach by punching him in the face. Yeah. <laughs> very Klingon. Yeah, it was very apparent very quickly that Mach is supposed to be Klingon Boimler with his brown nosing <laughs> and his knowledge of obscure history. Yes. And especially in the fact that he gets himself into ridiculous situations. Like being trapped under a Targ and then being trapped under a passed out Klingon veteran. Yeah, you know, I, at first I didn't see it, but after you mentioned it, I like he, you know, he does all this badass stuff too, like challenge uh, Captain Dorg t- uh, to a duel. And, and at first I was like, that's not Boimler, but I'm like, wait, season two Boimler is actually a badass. I think you're well, right. Well, and more than that, I think Boimler would do that if he felt that, you yeah. know, uh, Captain Freeman was betraying her Starfleet oath. Yes. I think, it, well, I wouldn't challenge, he wouldn't challenge her to a duel to well, the death. Well, not a duel to the death, but he would attempt <laughs> to have her removed from command. I do love their comment about, you know, they're always all like, uh, all about, you know, blood and honor and combat, and they're making fun of serving on a Vulcan starship. And they're all like, oh, Vulcans are all like, Avoid death and cower in Given the Vulcan. <laughs> that was one of the best, like, one-liners from this episode. Well, and it's funny Pretty because good. it started, this is like a running gag throughout it, where they reference in the beginning, Boimler references, serving on a Klingon lower decks. Yes. And they're like, that's horrible, you have no idea. And he's like, what, they've been out there for centuries, they gotta have that stuff on point. And then we see it, and they're in the exact same situation. Exact same. At least they have, like, a, you know, a way, a promotion, a way to, to get promoted. You just murder the person above you, yeah. which is totally legit. You can't just do that on the Cerritos. So, I do want to comment on a couple of things about the captain. The first is that he quoted Shakespeare, which is like a... Yeah. yeah. Which line? Towards the end, and of course... Oh, let's slip the dogs yeah. of war, right? And so I... I feel like he's quoting uh, the, the villain from Star Trek Six. Whatever that dude's name was, Eyepatch Man? Yeah. Doesn't he say that? But, I mean, that's it. He famously was quoting Shakespeare, and they even, in the beginning, reference seeing Shakespeare in the original Klingon. But it kind of made me wonder. So, like, are just all Klingons into Shakespeare? Or is it just some (laughs) Klingons? Or is it they're into some Shakespeare? Like, the ones that are all about, you know, conflict and war and death? Hmm. Or are there, like, Klingons out there who are, like, jamming to... You know, Midsummer Night's Dream, or As You Like It. I just, I got questions here about <laughs> Klingon culture. I feel like we need some questions asked. Like, you know, obviously there was like some. So after first contact with humans and Klingons, some Klingon went to Earth and stumbled upon Shakespeare. And like, did he just like cherry pick the one like you said? You know, the ones that have like the most violence, and were like, this will sell well in the whole world. Let's ship this back to Kratos. I feel like every alien culture is probably doing that. Yeah, something about the violent plays really resonate with the Klingons, perhaps. Yeah. Maybe that's what it is. And so the other thing I want to mention about this guy, Dorg, I don't know if you noticed anything about his evil laugh. Did it sound familiar to you at all? 
What? No. Do you not listen to our podcast? I, I listen to it a lot while I'm doing it. I know a guy who laughs just like Dorg. In fact, <laughs> oh, I'm really? talking to him right now. <laughs> Do I sound like an evil Klingon when I laugh? Uh, no, because he didn't sound like an evil Klingon. He just sounded like a dork. Oh, no. <laughs> well, you know what? If Maybe that's why he's dead. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> he didn't make getting it. a little dark a on this laugh. podcast, Stavros. <laughs> You know, I'll I'll take it. This someone was getting paid lots of voiceover monies to voice it, saying I sound like Colton Dunn, who, like I said, has a, has big recurring roles in TV shows. I guess I'll take it. Take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what else? Oh, you know what? Speaking of the Klingon segment, I have a very tiny introduction into a sub segment that I like to call "Damn It, Mike," and I think you might be able to guess what this is about. What is it about the Klingons that shows up in this episode that you only see one other time in the Star Trek franchise. That's the purple blood. Yeah. Are we retconning Klingon blood to be purple now? Well, I mean... Why? Why? I don't think we're retconning. Why is it purple I think now? it's we're returning to the original continuity. This is a fix to how it should have always been. <laughs> That's what a retcon is. No. So are we retconning all Klingon blood to be to be pink now? Well, it was always supposed what to be. What is going on, Mike? Now we're going to have to go back to, like, all of the Blu-rays and, like, retcon all of the red Klingon blood to but be I mean, purple. Is it? Is this the best time to retcon Klingon blood, Mike? Really? It's not a retcon. Is that's it? how the blood appeared in Undiscovered Country. That's, like, a famous <laughs> thing where it's all, like, it looks like Pepto-Bismol. It's all, like, you <laughs> yes. know what? I wonder if they just never get stomach aches because they're in their veins. Runs. <laughs> but, like, ever since then, in all TNG and DS9 and so on, it's always been red, but now we're back to purple, yeah, well, it just, and it's just confusing. It's pink, I just don't like pink. confusion it's, it's in my Klingon blood, blood colors. Thank you, not purple. Oh, it's a pink. Yes. Okay, still, it's they just didn't have the production values. You know, it's like you look at TOS and you go, "Why are they just humans in terrible makeup and weird <laughs> wigs?" Well, didn't they do that to avoid like an R rating for uh, Star Trek Six, something like that? I, I don't care why they did it. It was awesome, and they need to keep it that way. Now I'm all confused. What color is Klingon blood? It's just pink. I guess we're just we're just now it's just pink. And now there's I'm now I'm all confused and it didn't have to be this way. It always was, but my here friend. We are. It always was. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. But speaking of try segue into my non dammit mic segment, but one the cool thing I did see that was in scenes that had Klingon blood in it was the return of a Klingon sword. And um I bring this up because um, in some early TNG episodes, well, not, uh, maybe not that early, but episodes with Worf, where he goes to kill Duras, actually, you can see on Duras's Klingon ship, there are a lot of like swords in the Klingon style, like on the walls. But after that, it becomes exclusively Batleths. But this guy, Captain Dorg, he has it. Kind of, it kind of looks like a a dagger at first, but it's long enough to be like a short, like short swordy. And it was, I thought it was really cool. To oh see yeah, you're actually. talking about the one that's all like curved and weird shaped, right? That like would never work as I, an actual sword. I, I guess so. It's the one that uh, Mach takes because Dorg drop, drops it during their duel, and Mach takes it and stabs him through the chest with it. And you know, I, I don't want to segue too hard here and get us off course because this is about Star Trek and not swords. But as a man who owns a <laughs> Number of swords in a quantity that no man should own unless he is a medieval king. <laughs> okay. None of the Klingon weapons make any dang sense. Well, a sword makes sense, right? Not in that shape. But still, I thought it was cool to see. I I remember think, seeing that episode because I, I did a TNG rewatch several months ago now. And I was like, wow, like those Klingon swords are cool. We should see more. And then 
and then you know the production staff was just like oh but batless are the best and you never see the swords ever again but then in this one you see a sword and it's great well you know for how absurd, someone even gets stabbed with for it. how absurd the batless were they were a cool design that's true they're very unique yeah. too if you know nothing about weaponry they look like they should be functional uh let's see well do you have anything else about the klingon plot that you want to mention not really i think it's time we moved on to something a little more friendly yes the vulcans the sea plot this takes place on board the Vulcan cruiser Cheval, and I tried really hard to see if there was a translation for that, but I could not find it. I, I think you mean the V plot. But a bunch. <laughs> wow, nice work. But gosh, if any listeners know if this is a, actually supposed to be a Vulcan translation for something, please let us know because uh, I could not find it. I'm curious to know if it is actually supposed to be translated to something because I could not find it. But on board the Cheval, we have our starring Lower Decker, Talyn, T-apostrophe-L-Y-N, who is our Renegade Vulcan. <laughs> In capital letters, Renegade. Very similar to Mariner. I think you you were speaking before yeah. about how Talyn is basically Vulcan Mariner. Yeah, Vulcan Mariner, Klingon Boimler. That's what this episode's all about. I hope they do this every season <laughs> and just keep expanding the roster. And maybe we can eventually get Borg Rutherford and... Ooh. Jem'Hadar Tendi? No. I guess it's possible. I, I guess that doesn't really work. But yeah, I love the fact that just like Klingon Boimler, Vulcan Mariner is like the wild and crazy out there officer within Vulcan <laughs> culture. And it's just, it's hilarious yes. to watch that. That was really great to see. I have a note here that the voice actress for Talyn is a woman named Gabrielle Ruiz. She is known for a recurring role on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend on that TV show, and she's done a number of other TV roles. So not not a stranger to comedy here as well. Kind of neat to see. Yeah, that. and I think she also did a turn as a character on Law & Order, maybe? They've all been on Law & Order. I mean, you just throw that out about any actor <laughs> or actress. And That's true. 75% of the time, Law you're going to be right. I thought it was uh, one of the best parts of this show, or of this episode, was Talyn interacting with the other members of the Vulcan crew and every one of them telling her in monotone after she says something to them in monotone that she is she's having uncontrolled outbursts and is out of control out of control and of course <laughs> the moment that really hit me that she was Vulcan Mariner punitive spiritualism they sent her to the brig oh fantastic yeah. <laughs> although did you notice anything about the Vulcans to segue here a little bit and their speech patterns no they all say sense oars oh yeah you know as and i was watching the show and i and and of course one of them says sensor i think the captain says sensors and i i almost lost my mind because that is just like star trek has ruined for me now because of sensors and i was like you know what i'm maybe i bet you i'm just overreacting but here we are talking about it anyway so yeah this is just my life now you know what? And you you obviously aren't the only one that noticed that, because otherwise, why would it show up so often in this series? I think you're right. And it's interesting, too, because Talyn even uses the sensors, but she's much more subtle about it, which I think, again, is a nod to her being the, you know, out there free thinker. Yeah, that was and great. And you know what the other thing she does that Mariner does? She wears her uniform wrong. Oh, I didn't notice Mariner that. Mariner always has the rolled up sleeves and very often the open right. jacket. And Talyn, mm-hmm. she wears her robe and it's not cinched like everybody else's around the waist. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I thought that was a really neat That's really cool. visual cue. Very, very good design yeah. work on this show. 
Great job. Yeah, I didn't notice that. Uh, although I did uh, at that point where they're in the meditation uh, chamber. She does quote some Spock in there, though. She goes, logic is the beginning of wisdom and not the end, which is something that Spock says in Star Trek Six. And, you know, kind of ballsy, quoting Spock, like, you know, a revered Vulcan figure, you know, half Vulcan figure is he, in your defense. Is he revered on Vulcan, though? I've always kind of wondered that. I think so. He's like a decorated ambassador before he went I, to I, hang I, out on the Romulan homeworld. I don't necessarily think he was that revered, though. I oh. Maybe he is by now, but... And I think that's like a fantastic like reference for her, where it very much shows her character, because that's that's the whole story of Spock's character is his evolution. Uh, discounting the TOS pilot, where he is a grinning weirdo, that's his thing. He's he's very logical, but he has a hint of humanity in him, and he's surrounded by humans, and he frequently gives in to his less logical thought processes, and even. Uh, there's one episode in TOS where by the end he has this newfound respect after he leads a disastrous mission and right. suddenly realizes, like, and I think that's probably where this phrase comes from. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Gosh, yeah, a lot of depth to this character that we can already identify. I think uh, especially, you know, one, you know, something else she does that's similar to Mariner is she does a not quite as facetious but still facetious Vulcan salute when she's leaving the captain's quarters. Yeah, you know, totally a missed opportunity for a Vulcan to give the sarcastic Vulcan salute as you have so desired for so long. It's still pretty sarcastic. She, like, kind of gives, like, show, like as she's leaving, it doesn't even look and still salutes. I still got a lot of yeah. sarcasm from it, but it's not quite as Mariner as as perhaps she will get yeah. in the future of the show. You know, and, and this is one of those things that actually kind of bothers me with the portrayal of Vulcans here is they are extremely stick in the mud, you know, straight backed, yeah. you know, serious, right. hardcore adherence to logic and failure to understand other yep. people. Tuvok was very much that way. But it's heavily implied right. that he is on the extreme end of Vulcan culture. I think you're right. Like he was almost a culinary master where he was like all logic all the yeah, time. Yeah, and it was when he joined Starfleet. And I love that because I always talk about that after that episode aired was all like oh yeah back when Tuvok was a hardcore racist and <laughs> I feel like they lean too much into that that Tuvok portrayal where it seems to be mm. that's not the like modern Vulcan culture but they have a long way to grow on that path to acceptance but at the same time they're not the rigid adherence to logic and we're right all the time despite the fact that they're constantly wrong you know, honestly, Vulcan's, Vulcan portrayal has been all over the place in the franchise. I mean, in, in DS9, we have the racist Vulcan, too, you know, so... Yeah, yeah. It's hard to say true. exactly what, like, the average Vulcan's like. But they were also, you know, racist Vulcans who embraced a alien culture's illogical sport and played it to the hilt. That's true. That's very true. Uh, one other thing I want to mention about the Vulcan subplot here is that in all of the scenes, all the Vulcans are all speaking in monotone. And at first I thought it was, it, it was, it was funny the whole time, but I was like, it, it got to the point at the end where I was like, I'm glad this is over because if the entire show was like Vulcan characters talking to one another in monotone, I would stab myself in the ear probably. Yeah. Weird. Didn't bother me Very at all. Very difficult to listen yeah, to. No. Really? Fine. It was just a little too much. Like they, you could tell like the director told the voice actors like, okay, speak in monotone and try and be really boring. It'll be funny. No. And it was. I was like, I don't want the whole show like It this. gave me a warm, fuzzy feeling that just reminded me of my upbringing. 
Is that what you're referencing? Yeah, you know when time? the computer would tell me stories at night. Oh, cute little baby Aaron being told stories by the monotone computer. Yeah, and then it would spit out nutrient paste in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We should talk more about your uh, your upbringing during this show. I think it's uh, going to get us a lot of listeners. I feel like those aren't the kind of listeners we want. <laughs> wow, you just insulted all uh, nutrient-paced upbringing kids. Yeah, all three of them. I mean, oh no. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's move on to the very end, the where the A, B, and C plot all come together for the resolution of the episode. Red alarm! Yeah! <laughs> What another one of the best parts of this show was red alarm, red alarm with on the board the packled ship. Yeah. Uh, before we get into packlets, because I do want to talk about them, when the plots do come together, like the whole resolution of this episode is like super Star Trekky. I love it to bits. Mock coming back and murdering his captain because he knows something's wrong, and then the Vulcans coming in to save the Cerritos and putting the packlets in their place. All I love it. It's some of the best Star Trek has to offer and I want to see more of that. Yeah, I feel like this had a very Star Trek ending where all of the elements when they come together, they're kind of pulling from different stories or from different uh, series. So, right. like the story of the Klingons and the Klingon crew member overthrowing his captain is very DS9. That was a big story of Worf mm. and in TNG as well, but more so yeah. in DS9. Where it's explicitly called out that Worf has this view of who a Klingon is supposed to be and the culture he's supposed to live in, and his people don't right. live up to that at all. And that's very much what happens in this episode. This Klingon yeah. who believes in Klingon culture sees his captain as not living up to it and overthrows him when nobody else will. Yeah, The Vulcan ship, even in the face of a crew member who is doing things they're not supposed to, who has gained knowledge in an inappropriate way they don't disregard that knowledge they act on it something strange is going on yeah. we have a duty to investigate right. the cerritos everyone's on vacation and they immediately give it up without a second thought to come to the ship's aid and the pack lads yes. are pack lads <clears throat> anyways moving on <laughs> yeah i loved it a lot but i you know what we should talk about the pack lads because the spa- the fourth ship of the five ships in this episode, but not enough to actually deserve its own plot, is the Paclid spaceship Paclid. Well, another hilarious uh, one-liner. One of my favorite aspects of that is when the Klingon captain deems over to the Paclid ship, and Rebner, the Paclid captain, introduces himself, <laughs> and the Klingon and the Klingon captain's like, "Ah, oh, yes, Rebner, we've met several times." <laughs> He's like, "I know." <laughs> really great. And he has to like educate him on how bombs work. Yes. <laughs> double, double great. We used Red it and it stopped working. About. It's a bomb. That's how they work. Ah, <laughs> oh, so fantastic. Uh, and even the lower deckers introductions, or we only get a very short scene with them. But the their whole plot is they're just like during the fight, they're all just sitting near crates, and one of them is like, "I'm hungry." Yeah. And the other one's like, you should eat something. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? Well, is this? I mean, oh that's God. that's a great gag because the response is, you're a genius. Like, you yeah. should eat. Oh, man. But you know what? We, we've uncovered that the Klingons, or at least this one captain, Captain Dorg, is supporting the Paclids. So is the is the Paclid mystery solved now? Is is that why they're a threat? Because you got to understand that, like, the ships are, like, built on several species technology, right? So. 
Is this a just like an easy out by the writers to say like, yes, it's just one Klingon guy supporting them? Or is it just one piece of the puzzle, do you think? Well, you know, they have mentioned previously the uh, Pakleds using Klingon disruptors. Right. And we've seen them using Klingon disruptors. I, I think right. this is the answer. And it, it kind of disappoints me. I was hoping for something... Mm more ridiculous yeah but you know this doesn't mean this is the end of the pack leads or it doesn't mean that this is the end of the story i mean tng rarely did long form stories but it still worked out as a series but yeah definitely a disappointing end to the uh, pack led threat I'm, I'm still holding on to a thread of hope because yes all of the hand weapons that the pack leads use are klingon <clears throat> but you can see on their ships like their ships are made up of bajoran and romulan and klingon a bunch of other stuff so I, there could be another thread here I'm not totally positive because we've only got one episode left in the season, but I'm holding out hope. Maybe there's more to it. Well, I mean, first you get the weapons. Then you get the the bits. Then (laughs) you get the things that make you go. I guess that makes sense. I can see that. Um, Let's see. Well, anything else you want to talk about the plot? Because I do have some random things about the episode I liked and I want to talk about, but... Anything else plot related? Not really plot related, but there is that final scene where Ransom sends the young, what appears to be an acting ensign, because he is wearing the yes. Wesley jumper from TNG. Yes, the great. Yeah, after he got yes. out of the rainbow romper and started wearing something that looked yes. like a proper uniform. I thought that was a fantastic callback. I love that character. I love the uh, voice he yes. portrays. I love that. I just hope we're getting him back. I, I really want a Wesley 2.0 on this show. I was surprised to see... Well, first of all, yes, the uniform is super cool. Although I think the Wesley uniform was gray on both the shoulders and the rest of the outfit. Whereas these are, I think, I want to say black on the shoulders and gray the rest. Either way, cool to see a cadet uniform in the show. Don't ruin my joy. (laughs) Kind of surprised to see cadets on the ship because this is the first time. I feel like we, you know, we needed a way for Ransom to be, be cool to Boimler, but... Um, it was it, it was cool, like, seeing the, the first shot of these cadets on there, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Let's see what else. Speaking of fashion, we're, we're a big proponent of fashion on the show, or at least I am. One of the things I really liked was the uh, Captain Freeman uh, Ritos shirt, R-I-T-O-S, uh, which is a clear callback to the Discovery instance where they, you know, it says Disco on their shirts. And I've got to say, I saw it, and I have a shirt that says Disco on it, like, you know, off the Star Trek.com store. Now I need a Ritos one. Yeah, no. It's, uh, it was a cool callback. I, I need my fashion, apparently. Apparently. But uh, I don't I don't think there's been a whole ton of Discovery references in general, so it was nice to see at least something there. Yeah, well, and you know what? I think some of the best references they do are the visual references. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And that actually leads me to a bunch of visual gags during quick succession. Um, there is this shot. Um, if you recall when the Cerritos goes to Red Alert and everyone has been doing their vacation stuff and they all kind of like run out of the various rooms to assume their posts on the bridge and there's a lot of you know we're talking freeze frame references here uh, that were cool to see um, I picked out a Ambujitsu pair of people that were doing some Ambujitsu there was either a Red, uh, Red Robin no Robin Hood or uh, I, it was either Robin Hood or Peter Pan I couldn't quite piece it together but it was some some kind of outfit like that I saw the Sherlock Holmes kind of pipe and robe yeah, combination. Yeah, until you mentioned that, I never made that connection. But yeah, that's the <laughs> outfit that Data yeah, wears Data when wears, he's playing right? as yeah. Sherlock Holmes. Which I just, I can't fathom why as a robot you would ever want to play as Sherlock Holmes. I don't know. Maybe he he, he figures he's similar enough to play that part. Could be. 
But that's not even all the references. There's the two characters wearing exercise outfits that you saw Dr. Crusher and Troy wear in the TNG episode, The Price. That's when they're kind of doing yeah. their suggestive stretches. And then the Dr. Crusher leaves because Troy's love interest enters the scene. That's a very standout and scene. And I have no doubt that is a scene that everybody's probably saying, oh, you know, executives or whatever. They got to sex it up. And I'm like, right. That smacks of Roddenberry. The dude liked his women. <laughs> and I can't fault him for that, yeah. you know. But he had some weird ideas. You know, yeah. everybody bags <laughs> on the cat suits that showed up in Voyager and TNG. But, you know, yeah. Troy started that. And uh, that was all Roddenberry. I have no doubt <laughs> he would have approved of Seven of Nine and Paul. I mean, the original series. I mean, come yeah. on. There's a whole lot of sexy women floating around that show nothing wrong with sexy that. men too hey you know what the yeah more sexy the merrier yep gotta have gotta have the sexy but yes other outfits there is a like a napoleon or like a you know french army outfit dude running around and then some other characters in like i want to say kind of shakespearean outfits they've got the kind of the neck yeah I don't know what that weird ruffles uh, or whatever that is neck ruffle thing that you see yeah, in renaissance right. paintings and theater right it's so a lot of fun, kind of very brief back-to-back references just during that one shot. It's fun. I didn't even notice a lot of these on my first playthrough, but when I did the freeze frame, I was like, oh, I, I recognize that. Yep. Some good times there. Uh, but you know, that leads to potentially the best joke of the whole episode slash <laughs> even the whole show. And I think you know what I'm talking about. The Borg Lower Decks. So good. So, I don't know if you noticed this, but one of the Borg so they're all cyborged out and they all have the you know armor yes. plating and covering of the late yep. borg but one of them yep. has perfectly normal lower arms really i didn't know i'm telling you this is the lower deckers borgified i i freeze-framed that scene and i'm trying to figure out who's who and the only one i've identified is mariner you know something else about that about that shot is they all have like the arm attachments as part of the alcove and that's early borg like that goes away after the first couple of borg episodes i think they they've just go into the straight standing position regeneration so they definitely incorporated some early borg into this uh, yeah but anyway it's you know it's it's a little disappointing that the in paramount plus it does the streaming service thing where like it kind of minimizes the show you're watching when it's at the end credits and I want. I was like, no, I need more of this joke, and I had to re-maximize that the screen yeah. or whatever because you can, you know, the sounds going, and you know, it's it's the lower deckers, the Borg lower deckers doing. I just thing, need that scene on loop. <laughs> it was so good. So I do want to comment before we uh, sign off for the evening. Yes, I had mentioned something previously about a scene that really got me from like a storytelling and literary standpoint, where I had this moment mm-hmm. where I'm like, oh no. So, there's the scene where they are playing uh, Mariner and Freeman. Right. Whatever Star Trek clue, Federation clue, Starfleet clue, whatever you call it. Right. Did they give that thing a name? I don't think they named it. The point it. is... It has, like, the pieces of sorry, and the but the plot of clue. But the point is that at the end of that scene, there's a moment where, you know, Mariner's going on her rant about how it's, you know, it's always the chef, and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Right. Then she gets up to leave, right? And there's this yes. moment where she you know her mother talks to her and says she had fun today and mariner stops in a very yeah. serious tone and says i had fun too and then the doors close yeah and it's this very poignant mm-hmm. moment and i'm like oh no the captain's gonna die 
Like, that's what happens oh. after that scene oh, no. in tradition literature, right? No. The mother-daughter, father-son, <laughs> mother-son, daughter-father, uh, estranged uncle, you know, favorite toddler nephew, where they reconcile their oh, differences. No. And then the older mentor figure dies. That oh, is no. what happens. And so I'm like, it ends, and I'm like, hey, it didn't happen. That's great. But you know what? We got one more episode, so... Oh, no. <sighs> I was I noticed that, too. It does seem like there's a little bit of reconciliation there, and I'm a little worried, too. I'm 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 perspiring. I'm worried. I think you're... Are we going to see Captain Freeman's death? I think you're a little emotionally invested in this silly animated series. <laughs> I think you may be right. Oh, gosh. Well, you know what? Now I'm going to be worried about next episode. I, I feel like I feel like we're done here. Well, now I have to go worry. Sleep tight, my friend, because I know that I'm going to pass out as soon as we sign off. Because I've had one too many, <laughs> and that means we need to Uh-oh. call it a night. You can catch us again next week for our season finale coverage. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, at Lower Dorks, or you can extend your sensors out to find an anomalous Metreon gas reading. Follow that trail and you'll find a lone podcaster handing out hand grenades to idiots. That's you, right? Yeah, I'm the podcaster. And you are? I'm the grenades? Yes, Stavros. You're the grenades. You're blowing up, son! <laughs> <laughs>